Hi and welcome to Headline Talks, our podcast on European news coverage and those at the heart of it. My name is Lisa Powells. I'm a researcher producer at Headline News Facilities Productions in Brussels. Today we have a very special and interesting guest with us. Sitting here in our studio is Dr. Fariba Mavadat. She's a foreign news correspondent at The Voice of America and has previously worked at BBC and at Euronews. She's here to talk with us about recent developments in her home country, Iran, as well as her own experiences. Hi, Fariba. Lovely to have you. Uh, hello. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah. And so, so I'll read that you're here. So, Fariba, it must be a very special time working as a, an Iranian journalist in Brussels. In Iran, there have been widespread protests uh, following the death of, of Masha Amini. What is your take on the recent protests in your own country? Yes, uh, you see, in the West, we are used to hearing just the news without knowing, without understanding or wanting to know the background to it, uh, the, the f uh, fabric and formation of societies, the cultures. It's uh, And, you know, the world has become so fast, you don't have patience and energy and wish to actually go to the to the heart of the matter. With Iran, you see, Iran is a very, as a whole, very complicated, very complex country with uh, more than 5,000 years of history. Iran now is, a, is an amalgam of various peoples, different cultures, different languages, different religions, different aspirations. It's a vast country called Iran, but you have so many different values and peoples. Even they look different from each other. In the north, you have blonde, blue-eyed people. In the south, you have dark, you know, black-haired people. So it's a very complicated and complex society. So when you're talking about a movement in Iran, you have to consider all those aspects to this society. And also the understanding and definition of democracy for them. You, 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 you're in, in the West and you have set ideas and understanding of democratic systems and democratic societies and democracy as a whole. It doesn't apply to various other parts of the world, including Iran. For example, in Iran, for more than 3,000 years to at least 2,500 years, the system was always based on a one-person leader, that is, one leader, admired and, you know, you name it, and worshipped by, by the whole society. And that one person could be a horrible, nasty person, killed his people, which they did frequently, or a, a very nice democratic people like Cyrus the Great, who uh, liberated Jews, who was, who was the, you know, the first person ever in history who produced a human rights charter on a cylinder. The cylinder, Cyrus's cylinder, is in Metropolitan Museum, in, you know, or I think probably in Britain, uh, British Museum. Anyhow, so, and then over, over years we had kings and uh, dictators or monarchs who decided solely for the society as a whole. And this is part of the culture. Then, after I mean, coming all the way to the 20th century, we had uh, the Shah. I, I don't want to get into, I don't think we have the 
time to get into the to the you know to the details of of things. Whether he was a good person, a good leader, or bad leader, I don't want to get into it. And then we had Khomeini, a religious leader, a supreme leader. It's the same sequence, or it's the same idea of one person deciding for the nation. And if that one person, like Mohammad Reza Shah, the Shah, the previous Shah, was secular, the society would become secular. If religious, the society would become religious. But you have to also understand that because of the formation and the fabric of the whole country, society, different peoples, these people have never been really religious. Islam was, in a way, imposed by uh, Muhammad and Arabs who invaded the country and put people under pressure to accept the new faith. They had to, otherwise they would lose their jobs, they would lose their livelihood. And then it became, you know, part of the, the belief of, of the, the overall belief of the way of life of the society. But you have to also understand that Iranians are not on the whole, if I may claim it as, a, as an individual, I'm sure I'm going to make lots of people very angry by saying that, but they're more superstitious than religious. And this superstition is as a result of something that I wanted to arrive at as the main core of my argument here and explanation. This is as a result of learned helplessness. Now, learned helplessness is a chapter in mass psychology. That is, when you are subjected to repeated challenges, but you have no control over the situation, then you feel helpless, of course. Think of your private lives, think of your relationships that go wrong, think of your workplace, the bad boss, <laughs> and the HR, and you name it. I mean, you can apply it to every aspect of your private life as well as looking at the society and, and see it. When you, then you feel helpless and unmotivated to take action because you see these negative events inescapable and unavoidable. Then you submit, otherwise you blow a fuse, you burn out. What I'm trying to say, after all that, is that you look at Iran now and you see people from time to time to rise, to protest. They want their natural rights. You see, I'm not talking about something extraordinary. I'm talking about your right as, a, as an individual. And then you're brutally, brutally suppressed. What do you do? It repeats itself every 10 years, every five years, now every two years. And then eventually, because you feel that there's nothing you can do, you feel helpless, then you learn not to rise. You learn to accept your fate. You learn to leave it to God, if you see what I mean. And this is the method that almost all, I mean, if you look at uh, recent history, almost all authoritarian regimes have applied. Look at Venezuela, for example. Nothing's changed, but people have accepted. Look at Egypt, for example. Look at Libya. I mean, there are so many examples of this learned helplessness, of this method, this measure that authoritarian regimes, or uh, even at work, uh, the management in 
private relation, personal relationships, a bad partner against another partner, they have applied. And you either leave a relationship because it's easy to leave a relationship, or if it's a country and you're in the grip of violence, that is state violence, you have to accept. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's that will be the case? Will people accept it this time around as well? Like, will it just blow over as, as we speak? Do you, do you believe that? Yes, most definitely. Because in Iran, what do you do if you're empty-handed and as an individual, a decent citizen, a decent individual, uh, you have no job, you ha- you've, you've you know, finished your education, you've done everything you could, you, you're entitled to a job. You're entitled to earning something for your family. You're entitled, if, if you're willing to work, you should be able to live a normal life. And when you see your children starve, when you have nothing to put on the table, when they're, they're cold and you can't keep them warm, when they have no shoes, and yet then you say to yourself, but I've done everything I could. I am a responsible citizen. I'm entitled to some comfort. I don't even call it comfort. I'm entitled to a normal, basic life and basic rights. Then you go to the street and protest. What do you get? You get your, your, your live ammunition. You, 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 you're badly beaten. You're put in prison. And you know that your children are back home with nobody to support them. There's no end to it. You get raped. Not even, I mean, if male or female, it doesn't matter. So eventually you say to yourself, is it worth it? If it doesn't work, I'm not going to do it. I mean, this is normal for animals, for humans. Yes, I believe that unless the world, the West, would come to the help of Iranians, ordinary Iranians would be absolutely helpless to do anything about it. And um, if we indeed, if we zoom out and look at the West and at the US, I think recent events have also impact, correct me if I'm wrong, have also impacted EU-Iran relations a little bit. Last week, the EU added another bunch of, of names of uh, Iranian individuals and, and organizations to its sanctions list. Do you think that these relations have changed over the years? Or? Absolutely not. No. Uh, I believe that European citizens, ordinary people, MPs, I mean, so many people, artists, they really felt for Iranian people and You know, they sympathized, they came out in support of protesters. But I have absolutely, with a capital A, no faith in governments, European governments. They saw that, you know, it would buy them probably votes or, you know, the sympathy of societies and their people to also voice, and I'm saying voice support for Iranian, for, for protesters. It was a lot of rhetoric, but in practice, they haven't taken one single step, practical step, meaningful step to support Iranian protesters. And I tell you why. You talk about sanctions. Sanctions have proved over many decades to be absolutely symbolic. Sanctions have never worked, maybe a little bit economically, But as uh, the former Iranian uh, foreign minister, Mr. Zarif, said, 
Iranians have a PhD in circumventing sanctions. And if anything, sanctions have made quite a number of individuals and governments very rich indeed. Because now you go to the Emirates, now you go to Venezuela, now you go to India and say, well, can you work? Can you help me? Can you act as a middleman? And I pay you for it, of course. And they say, oh, but of course, you know, all these shipping companies, for example, in Panama, 37 Panamanian ships were carrying Iranian oil to the world. And of course, Europe knows it, the US know it, you, you, I mean, they know, but they need energy, they need oil, and they have to keep quiet. At the same time, they don't want to burn all bridges with Iran in the hope. And by no means, I don't think by any means that there are the enemies they claim to be against Iran. And these sanctions against individuals and uh, entities, for God's sake, you have endless companies all over the world that claim have, that are Iranians, but they, they are registered in Canada, in all, all, all over Europe, you name it, that on the face of it have nothing to do with Iran, but they're dealing with Iran. And everybody knows it, it's just that it's not documented. What do you believe would be a real measure to help Iranian, the Iranian people, something that governments can do instead of It's the only thing that helped people, Iranian people, is political will. And that doesn't exist at the moment. At the moment, I think there's also a lot of talk about the EU maybe putting the Iranian Revolutionary Guard on the terror li list. What would that mean? Would that nothing. be symbolic? It, it means nothing. How can you put an army on the list of sanctions? What do you want to do with them? I mean, the revolutionary guards are not going to have a base in Europe. So you would say, no, you're, you're, you're sanctioned. Okay, they're in Iran. They're part of the, the army. They act as they're acting. How can you put a whole army on sanctions? What, what, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just symbolic. Mm. Yeah, I see. And also, do you think maybe that the way we look here uh, in, in Europe at Iran at the moment has also shifted since the war in Ukraine? I do not believe... Uh, okay, now that's conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just talking about like um, the Iranian drones. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what I'm saying, what I'm going to say is conspiracy theory. <laughs> Give it up. <laughs> your, your, your question is complete, um, absolutely legitimate. My answer is not going to be... <laughs> what, I'm, what I think as a, as a veteran journalist, I've seen it all, I've done it all, is that I do not believe that Iranians would dare taking such an action without resting assured that the consequences for them would be limited and manageable. I don't think that, you know, when, when they decided to send drones to Russia, they probably calculated, okay, what would the West do? They would know, yeah. Okay, what action would they want to take? Military uh, intervention, they wouldn't do it. They failed in Libya. They failed in very many various places. Iran is a vast country. It can't be invaded militarily. They want to organize a coup. If they wanted to do that, they would have done it 40 years ago, right? And you never know what the consequence of a coup in Iran would be, particularly when Russia is supporting the mullahs, when India is... But so many 
so many governments, powerful governments, are benefiting from mullahs, that is the present regime, to be in charge, to be in power. So they calculated well when they decided to send drones. And don't forget, Iranians don't have the know-how. They don't have the capability of actually making drones. These drones are probably imported from North Korea or the black market, you name it. And Iranians are only middlemen, you know, to send these armaments, drones or whatever to Russia. Granted, they have lots of soldiers, that is militia, usually Afghans wanting, you know, volunteering for getting ID and permission, permanent permission to stay in Iran, you know, refugees, basically. They are exported to the Russian front. But other than that, when it comes to technology, Iranians are just middlemen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. On another note, in Belgium, there has been a lot of controversy about the arrest of the Belgian aid worker who was arrested in Iran and who on alleged uh, espionage charges. I don't think this is not anything new. Iran has an active history of so-called hostage politics. Could you maybe explain for our listeners what this entails a bit? Like, what are they trying to get out of it? Yes, this hostage-taking, basically, I mean, that is state hostage-taking. This is a part of uh, haggling between Iran and the West. And I think the West, from the very beginning, I mean, at the beginning of of this, uh, at the beginning of the Iranian Revolution, when they took uh, U.S. diplomats hostage at the embassy, they made a very big mistake. I mean, it wasn't the first mistake President Carter committed to, I mean, made. But they entered into negotiations with Iranians. And that was a huge mistake because Iranians, that is the present regime, learned that, oh, this is a good idea. You know, we can make, we can take uh, the political uh, concessions, uh, material concessions, armament, and you name it, and it started from there. Everybody, I'm sure, I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating, but I think everybody knows that uh, the Belgian hostage is part of that deal. I mean, Belgium has kept an Iranian diplomat in prison with the charge under the charge of providing of plotting a terrorist act against uh, uh, you know a group of Iranians in Paris the mujahideen and it was proved and it was it wasn't anything political i mean it his uh, his case was considered in a belgian court for a long time and the evidence was very much there so he was uh, he was put in prison it was as simple as that Iranians said that, no, 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 send him to send him home. We'll keep him here in prison. And of course, everybody would know that he would be welcomed as a hero. The Belgian government and uh, the prime minister, Monsieur de Croo, they actually toyed in summer. They toyed with the idea of returning this Iranian diplomat back home in return of uh, some energy contracts, you know, oil contracts being given energy preference, you know, in, in Europe. And then there was a huge protest in Belgian Parliament, and it came out. And Mr. De Croo, that is the government, couldn't justify it, you know, because it had come out. It was revealed to the public. There was nothing he could do. So he said, oops, sorry, Iranians, I know that we negotiated, but um, not, not now. Wait. 
And the Iranians being Iranians, so the Iranian government, they said, oh, you don't want to give us Mr. Asadi? Okay, we'll see. And then they took this innocent yeah. aid worker Belgian. Uh, the reaction of the... And so they could still like uh, have a negotiating peace. Then on another note, I also wanted to talk to you about your experience as a, a senior journalist in Brussels. You've been working in Brussels for a number of years. And I wanted to ask you, how your experience has been as an Iranian journalist, but also as a woman in the journalism sector, something that's mainly male-dominated? Uh, well, I can put my hand on my heart and confidently say that Brussels is the best place to be as a female journalist. I've, I mean, I, I worked 14 years for BBC World Service and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Prague, and then the Euronews and our Voice of America here. I've never had a satisfying an experience as a female journalist than, you know, my years in Brussels. That said, it's not easy to be a woman. I suppose I've lived in worked and lived in various parts of countries of the world. I would say it's not easy to be a female professional anywhere in the world. This Me Too movement was effective, more or less, but little's changed. And I tell you about these uh, big movements that they start. You see, like the Me Too, you go out and people in the world see that it's a worthwhile cause and they support like like this Iranian uh, uprising and they shout about it you know newspapers people celebrities you name it they talk about it they come out and then there's this huge wave of news about it and these societies get tired and then it fizzles out people don't want to hear about it any you're not going to hear another me too movement for at least the next 10, 20 years, because people people get, you know, tired easily. The Me Too movement maybe worked in the sense of, you know, a few middle managers were sacked, not top managers, but it continues. And it's very much up to the female individual, that is the individual, to challenge it. It's, it's a constant challenge. It's a constant challenge, I assure you, particularly if you're young and I should know, then you have to think and evaluate the situation yourself. Who is it that's bothering me? Who is it that undermine me? I'm not, not only sexually, I'm talking about professionally. It is very common, particularly in my world, that you sit in, in the editorial uh, meeting every day. I'm not talking about my job now, I'm talking in general, and particularly previous experiences, various organizations. And then you come up with an idea, you have an idea, a considered idea, and you voice it. There are 10, 12 people around the, the table, and probably, you know, half of them or more are male. And uh, the editor, chief editor would hear you, and not, and you think, okay, you know, you... And then a male uh, colleague would voice the same idea, and it would go down better than... It's the repetition of the same idea, but somehow the chief editor, being a male himself usually, would think, oh, what a good idea. He forgets what you've already said. 
somehow, this is just an example, and I'm not accusing anybody or any organizations, somehow still a male presence, a male voice has more weight and more wisdom. I think female journalists have come a long way compared to other professions, that is, women in other professions. We've come a long way. We've proved ourselves. We've been at war front zones, you know, and proved ourselves. But I think we still have a long way to go like, you know, any, like other women in the world. Yes, I agree. I think that's very true. Thank you very much for your insights. And I also want to ask you if you wanted to add something more to our discussion. Yes, all along our discussion, I felt that I've been pessimistic. I felt that I was uh, critical. But I still believe that the world is much better than what I, I pictured during the course of our conversation. I see there are lots of well-meaning people at government levels, at normal, I mean, ordinary uh, citizens. I'm optimistic, although cautious. I think we have, I mean, societies have a long way to go before they reach civilization because there's a difference between being advanced and being civilized. There are lots of countries in the West, and I don't want to single out, that are advanced, but they're not civilized because the first condition, the first measure for civilization being civilized is to have social justice. And I do not think that any country in the world has reached that utopia, that absolute ideal, but they're moving towards it. Yeah, I suppose, uh, so just suppose that doesn't really exist, the, the utopia. But it's good to, to end on, on a more positive note. Thank you very much for being here with us. I think you said some very, very interesting things. I learned a lot. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. 